Let us pray. Father God, we have just sung that we, we want to be pure, set apart for you, and ready to do your will. Lord, help us to hear your word just now so that we know what your will is. Send your spirit among us to purify us and to help us to do the things that you show us. Amen. Yo, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. So tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna really, really, really wanna zig a zig ah. The Spice Girls. Whoever thought we'd miss them the way we do? <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not about to analyze the impact of the Spice Girls on the worldview of third millennia Britain, nor am I about to search through the multi layered subtexts of their era defining debut wannabe for the deep theological truths that are undoubtedly hidden away there. I want to ask you a question, an important one. What do you really, really want? At the risk of sounding hugely presumptuous, I think I know the answer. I'm going to tell you what you want, what you really, really want. You want the same thing that I want and the same thing that every human being on the planet wants. You want to be happy. Happiness is what we're all about. We give all of our energy to finding happiness and then clinging on to happiness. And whether we're conscious or not, this, this search for happiness drives us at every point and at every turn. In the opening line of his book, In Search of Happiness, Dr. James Houston puts it like this, happiness is no laughing matter. It's the serious business of humankind. I've begun this morning to think about happiness because it's this search for happiness that underlies the coveting uh, that is the subject of the Tenth Commandment. We covet other people's stuff because we think if only I had what they had, I'd be happy. We believe that stuff, always more stuff, will, will make us happy. We've made stuff into the thing that we really, really want. Sometimes you have to spend a little bit of time out of your own culture to, to see it as it really is, to get enough of a distance from it to see what's going on. I used to think that Ulster, with its uh, long Christian heritage, its many, many churches, would be a, a great environment to live as a Christian. I imagined that our society was somehow naturally conducive to Christian growth. I assume that the air that we breathe here in Ulster is good disciple-making air. 
After living for a while in Vancouver on the west coast of Canada, I had to reevaluate that assessment. Now, Vancouver is on the surface a much, much less Christian place than, than Northern Ireland or than Belfast. Far fewer people go to church. Far more people have a far greater variety of beliefs than they do in this city. But there was one contrast with that city that immediately caught my eye. This much more godless city was much less materialistic than ours. People were much less obsessive about the kind of clothes they wore. The cars on average were an awful lot older than in Belfast. People weren't obviously fussed about upgrading every year or two. There were shopping malls, but they didn't feel quite like the hub of the society the way that ours do. It may be that it's a throwback to the, the hippie days of the 60s on the, north, uh, on the west coast of North America. But there was something about this city that, that seemed much less preoccupied with stuff. And I have to say it gave me great pause for thought and new eyes through which to look at our so-called so Christian Ulster. Let's get thinking about this commandment then. Coveting isn't a word that we use much these days, but the idea is one that we're very familiar with. We can all identify with the concept of wanting stuff that isn't ours. So whether it's clothes, houses, salaries, talents, cars, lifestyles, we want what other people have. We're never satisfied. We want more and more and more. We want to do better and be richer. And it's not surprising in that context that, that probably the national pastime of Britain, I think how you measure a country's pastime is what it does with its time off. Bank holidays in Britain are, are, are mostly about shopping, getting out there, getting into the shops. And since we need to be kept shopping, millions of pounds are spent every hour in the UK to enlarge our desires and to direct them towards particular stuff. So encouraging covetousness, what we're talking about here this morning, that's a, a national industry. It's called advertising. A while ago in North America, they went past the point where they were spending more money on advertising than on education. I'd be 100% sure that we're in the same boat here in the UK by now. In the early days, if, if you remember the early infomercials, adverts were, were actually about information. They would tell you about a product so that you could make an informed choice of whether this was something that you, you needed or not. But advertising nowadays has moved way beyond that. It's all about inflating any existing desires that we have or else taking desires that we don't even have and creating them and building them up in our lives. So the job of the advertiser is to make me look around me at my life, at my house, at my car, my phone, my computer, whatever it is, and make it look shabby and old to me. So a thing that's working fine, that I'm absolutely content with, it has to be made unattractive to me so that I'll go out and buy something that I really don't need. 
We live in a culture of covetousness. It's how our society works. And, and if we don't see that, we're, we're not going to understand this commandment. To, to obey the Tenth Commandment means to take a decisive step out of the way life in modern-day Britain works. It's as big a step as that. Jesus warns us here about the danger of covetousness in the parable of the sower. You might remember that parable that the farmer goes out and he sows his seed. And one of the places where the seed lands is in a place where, where thorns grew up and choked it. In the version of the story recorded in Mark chapter 4, Jesus explains what these choking weeds are. He says, some people are like seed sown among thorns. They hear the word, but the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So Jesus says that the thorns in his parable stand for covetous desires. These desires compete against our desire for God until they overwhelm our desire for God and strangle our souls. Isn't that tragic? That our desires for a a finer, bigger home or a fancier car or exotic holidays or cash in the bank, that these things could strangle our life with God. Yet that's exactly what happens. David Searle says that the desire for possession stalks through our lives as the great competitor to the Word of God. Possessions can crowd out the Lord until the one who is our maker, our God, is squeezed out altogether as the deadly creeper of covetousness takes over. He goes on. When God is ignored and spurned repeatedly, he sadly departs, though we may continue to go through the motions of our religion and pose as fine folk. The truth is that written over the door of our hearts is the word Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed. That's the final curse of covetousness, of those secret hidden desires of selfish greed which we cherish and indulge, they choke forever the voice of Christ and cast us into the hell of eternal separation from God. That's the danger of covetousness. It's as deadly as that. Maybe we didn't think covetousness was a big deal. It's an inward thing that other people can't see. There's no law against it can't be locked up for coveting. But we just might lose our souls. If David Searle's right here about these dangers of covetousness, then we'll want to think and spend a little bit of time asking how, how we can live differently. Let me spend time sharing three suggestions of how we might counter covetousness And then three more suggestions of how we might cultivate contentment. To counter covetousness, first of all, we need to be aware and be realistic. That parable of the rich fool that we read a moment ago and the parable of the sower that I've already mentioned, 
shows how Jesus draws our attention to greed and covetousness. It's not only powerful, Jesus says, but it's subtle. Along with the first commandment, this is probably the most inward of the ten. As I've already said, there's no rule against coveting. There's no law in the land. And yet it can do us so much harm. So the first step is to beware and be realistic. A second step, if we're to counter covetousness, we must learn to see through the illusion. What do I mean by that? Well, in our best moments, it seems to me that we know that stuff doesn't make us happy. But yet, if you look at how we live our lives from day to day, we live most of our lives as if stuff did make us happy. We need to develop a healthy skepticism towards nonsensical advertising. Simply changing deodorant will not make you irresistible to women. I know, I've tried it. (laughs) Driving a certain prestige car will not make you stand out from the crowd. Because they watch the same adverts and they buy the same prestige car. So you just join the crowd. Folks, it's never too early to start teaching your kids about this. One of the writers I read preparing for this, he said that we should teach our kids to shout out, you've got to be kidding, when they see an advert on TV promising something stupid. I know that we have started to do a little of that in our house. Even though our kids are young, from time to time we explain to them that the people who make advertisements are showing them stuff that they don't really need making them want it so that they can make money from them and from their family. Think of a much heartache and a much financial pressure we'd avoid for ourselves and for our children if we learned to see through the illusion. We have a lot of teenagers in the, the congregation today, both our own and the guys from Terrace Row, Guys, can I encourage you to think this through? The best parents are not the ones who give you everything that you want. Because parents who do that for you are teaching you a very damaging lie. They're teaching you that life is all about stuff and that you need stuff to be happy. If you have parents who say no occasionally or even often, thank God for them. Because they're teaching you what Jesus taught all who follow him. A man's life doesn't consist in the abundance of his possessions. Life is not about stuff. Be realistic. See through the illusion. And thirdly, if we're to fight covetousness, we need to realize that fear lies at the heart of a lot of covetousness. We live in a culture of deep-rooted fear. Britain in 2011 is terrified of any number of things. And, And probably the number one thing that people in Britain worry about is having enough. Jesus encourages people time and time again to trust in God. Because he loves us and he'll provide for us. If we knew God better, 
I believe we'd be less tempted to be afraid and would be less worried about stuff and coveting. So we've been thinking there for a few minutes about how to counter covetousness. But if we're going to succeed in this area, as well as thinking of the negative things that we need to avoid, we should also be thinking of positive, a positive approach to this issue. And that positive approach is to cultivate contentment. We can do that in three ways that I'll suggest just now. First of all, we can keep our hearts. We can let God and not the advertisers shape our desires. What do I mean by that? Quite often we think of Christian commitment as being willing to give up what we want and then struggling for the rest of our lives to live the way that God wants. Now, undoubtedly there's some truth in that because Jesus calls us to a way of sacrifice. But what, the way I've just described it there is certainly not the full story. In the end, what God wants is not for us to live all of our lives with desires unfulfilled. He wants to change our desires and to make them his desires for us. And then what happens when we want the right things, it's good and healthy for him to give us all that we desire. So the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord and what? He will give you the desires of your heart. We need to keep our hearts. Second, to cultivate contentment, we need to adopt an attitude of gratitude. Guys, we have so much. So, so much. Our standard of living eclipses the vast majority of the world that we live in today. Our standard of living couldn't be be dreamed of by our grandparents two generations before us. We have so, so much. We live in a time when shops are making a fortune out of storage solutions. Because one of our problems is that we have too much stuff. We simply don't need any more. We need to find contentment somewhere else. The Apostle Paul wrote from prison, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Friends, instead of nurturing our greed, we've got to find ways to to, to recognize what we already have. We've got to say to ourselves, I'm alive. I live in a beautiful world. Do you see this, what's going on outside us today? This sunshine and this beauty and, and, and spring and the bird song, all of that. You can't put a price on that. It's all a gift. I live in one of the very few prosperous countries in the world. I have more freedom and security than most people in the world. Almost certainly... I have friends and family who care about me. God loves me and wants me as a friend. These are the the things that we can dwell on. Can I make a very concrete suggestion to you about developing an attitude of gratitude? 
How about rediscovering that old spiritual discipline of saying grace? Three times a day, or thereabouts, you'll stop what you're doing to eat. Why not take a moment to give thanks to God, to give thanks for that day, to give thanks for this food, to give thanks for friends who are there with us. Whenever we open our eyes, I think, to to see how much we already have and and to see the, the gratitude, then we begin to see that covetousness, wanting more, is actually ingratitude. It's a way of saying, Lord, everything that you have given me doesn't interest me because I want the next thing. I want more. We can cultivate contentment by keeping our heart in shape, by adopting an attitude of gratitude, and thirdly, by learning to give. The best and most powerful antidote to covetousness is giving. I don't know if you've ever seen that connection. Think about it for a second. If I can't give my money away, if I, if I simply can't do that, if I can't imagine doing that, then money's controlling me. It's in the driving seat. It's got me, and I'm, I'm shackled. If I can begin to give, and by the grace of God, as he allows it, give more, then that grip that money has on my life is slowly released and I'm free to live. Covetousness can't strangle generous people. I know that by observation. Jesus talked a lot about giving. Why? Because he knew that it was the antidote to materialism, the infallible cure for covetousness. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Folks, allow me to to finish for this morning. As we've thought this morning about covetousness, I can't help but see an interconnectedness of these Ten Commandments. This Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, seems to me to be particularly closely related to the first, you shall have no other gods before me well-known Christian writer John White, he, he makes that link between the two explicit in a title of a book. He says, money isn't God, so why is the church worshiping it? Covetousness is allowing money to be the other God that I have before the true and living God. Covetousness is allowing stuff to be the thing that I really, really want. Folks, these commands... Every one of them really do matter. We're finishing our series on the Ten Commandments this morning, but over the next couple of months we're going to run two short series, both of which I think uh, will, will allow us to dwell some more on some of what we've learned. In our morning services after Easter, we're going to take a few weeks to delve a little bit deeper into the subject of idolatry. Our our propensity to worship things that aren't God. We're going to expose idolatry so that we might begin to cut it out of our lives. 
In our evening services after Easter, we're going to run another Faith Academy, a series of seminars. And one of those seminars that we're going to run is called Gospel-Centered Family. And that's a course specifically designed to, to help us move from a place where we sit in our families and we say, how can God fit into my family? To recognizing that that's idolatrous. To saying instead, no, how can my family be built around and based on everything that God is and calls me to? We'll be challenged to give up our respectable middle class idols and to make God the the priority in our families. You shall not covet, says the 10th commandment. It's just an elaboration, really, of the first. You shall have no other gods before me. The psalmist shows us how we can and and could live. He urges us to delight ourselves in the Lord, and he'll give us the desires of our hearts. Do you not want to be in turmoil anymore about stuff? Do you not want to live your life lacking contentment all the time? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Let us pray. Father God, your word teaches that only you can give us what we really, really want. In our best moments, we know that chasing after other things is always a futile exercise, a waste of our very lives. Lord, help us to have no other gods before you, Help us to to find our delight in you, to begin to nurture that way of life. And Lord, show us what you, you long to do for us, to give us the very desires of our heart. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.